I've got like a very weird grey tint on my camera today. Swamp witch suits you, as always. I have got the hint of the Baba Yagas. <laughs> I think you can get a, a, a cream for that. If you heard, she's come down with the Baba Yagas. Oh, the Somerset <gasps> Baba Yagas. No, they're from Kent. <laughs> Oh my god! How many repeating terrible bits can we get into one thirty second thing? <laughs> Challenge accepted. I've now got a mental image of like you know that thing where the comedy gets really bad and someone gets yanked off by a cane. Yes, like that. But instead, I'm just dragged off by albatross. The albatross is the shepherd's crook of our podcast. I've never really seen. Obviously, why would I? But a shepherd's crook being used. I'm now trying. I'm not what entirely sure how one it? how one hooks a sheep. I mean, you is it like around of, the? How big are the hook bits? Is it like around the neck? Is it you use big. it like a collar? Yeah, I think you sort of use it like a collar to move them. Shepherds listening to our podcast, I'm sure there's at least. I'm sure one. we've got a shepherd. <laughs> we must have a shepherd. <laughs> Every time I mention a profession, one of them comes out the woodwork. You wouldn't think so with like an audience as small as we have, but it's apparently a very good. Uh, se- what's the word? I mean, diverse sector. Diverse sector of society. Yes. Um, speaking of, if there are tattooists who want to tattoo me and they're in the UK, give me a shout. You said that last week. I no know. One, no one's, no one's got come you. forward. Oh, no tattooists. Would you accept a tattoo from a shepherd? Yeah, probably. Give it a go. Or shepherding advice from a tattooist? You yeah, know, probably. We have to, uh, you know, uh, be flexible in these trying times. I just possibly, my brain very quickly went through a large pile of stupidity in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that for a second I was about to say that your husband's surname is Shepherd, and it isn't. I was thinking of Jack Shepherd, the character from Lost. <laughs> but he has been known to wrangle a sheep every now and then. Jack Shepherd, you know, of the Purgatory Shepherds. <laughs> it wasn't Purgatory. It was a confusing alley. I know it wasn't. <laughs> but that was the favourite theory until it got uh, confirmed, wasn't it? The Flash Sideways was kind of Purgatory. Right, sure. I was not paying attention to most of that show let's let's be honest yeah right, i was in fine. australia i was getting the dvds from a dvd rental shop only 10 years ago so it was kind of weird and old-fashioned then um i think lost series two is one of the last dvds series i remember buying when that was still a popular thing i've still got some dvd box sets yeah. that i've bought since then they're expensive yeah well i've got the full gilmore girls and i've got buffy and angel because uh, see for series you like rewatch a lot that makes sense so. yeah they're the ones that i like i couldn't live with if buffy and angel happened to never be on a streaming service like i'd need them gilmore girls i could probably live with one of those days, um, but... oh what's the pyramid called again the... hierarchy of needs <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> right <laughs> gilmore girls and buffy at the bottom then like food and drink self-actualization uh, attention <laughs> Yeah, I do need quite a lot Underwear of Underwear without holes in. <laughs> well, I mean, it's got some holes in. They're just where they're meant to be. <laughs> I just have to. I know we're recording now. <laughs> no, I meant leg holes. Just as you can see. I'm not wearing crotchless pants while we record. <laughs> Much to our listeners' disappointment, I'm sure. <laughs> I forgot about the leg holes. <laughs> And the hole at the top, so you can. <laughs> oh, that's not a hole. That's just part. It's I... a hole. All right, fine. It's a body hole. That kind of assumes that the default state of a garment is like a sphere of fabric. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Well, no, it's just all garments have holes in. Is the bottom of a hat a hole? Yes. All right. All right. I'm not going to argue with you. You're the seamstress. 
Well, no, I wouldn't say the bottom Double of the hat's a hole. absolutely meant. Sorry. You <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't have brought up the crotch suspense. <laughs> God, I'm really sorry if we've got younger listeners, by the way. Can we think of anything to talk about that's more Pratchett related than my underwear? Uh, no, I'm just going to beep out the entire soft open. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, well, it's not very upbeat, but what's his... Oh, my God, what's his name? Clive Sinclair? Yes. Clive He's Sinclair away, died. That's quite sad. Um, I found out from Terry Pratchett's uh, Twitter account, which is why I connected oh, right. the two. Um, because he and Rob were both uh, big users of the Spectrum things, the ZX, what's it? Oh, yeah. Uh, the tweet said something like uh, Terry Pratchett used to program wh- while Terry Pratchett was programming his computer to read out the top and bottom temperatures of a greenhouse overnight. I was programming mine to swear at my friends. Oh, <laughs> oh that's lovely. Yeah, it do- I do sometimes wonder how into computers I would have been if I'd been, you know, Gen Xer who had the prob. Knowing me, probably quite a bit because I do enjoy that whole kind of cobbling something together from. You know, if I'm the kind of person who'll try and write a website in Notepad for the sake of it. Yeah, if I'd had the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I'll never know. I guess we'll never know. We've got to think of something else to talk about that is just in case I decide to take out the bit about the underwear. <laughs> I feel like you should leave the underwear bit in and just bleep everything around me saying stuff like crotchless so that the listeners can think I said something much worse. Oh, that would be good, yeah. Yeah. And I now have a lucky lion in my handbag, thanks to your zoo expedition. It was a lovely expedition. What did I, I decide to call him? Grantham. You named him after the guy from. Oh that yeah, movie. no, I've I've changed my mind. You should call him Ridcully. Yes, good idea. Ridcully the lion. Perfect. Ridcully, somewhat Leonine. Or Mustrum. Mustrum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Bring back Mustrum as a name. There's not enough Mustrums in our day-to-day lives. Is it, is it a name or is it a made-up one? That's a good question. That's not start tangenting on wizard names before we've even started the episode, Francine. Oh, it's not even a wizard episode, is it? Yeah, all right. Yeah, there's no not. wizards in this bit. There are no wizards in this bit. There should be a wizard in this bit. Hmm. Is it um, Feet of Clay next? Yes. Are we doing that next month? Yes. All right, cool. No wizards in that either, I don't think. Wait, no, there's probably some wizards. But Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's in it's the city. It's another watch one. Yeah. It is. I'm very excited. But before we go on to Feet of Clay, should we um, mm-hmm. finish talking about Masquerade? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you want to make a podcast? Better. Yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Frat, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of our discussion of Masquerade. The exciting climax. The exciting climax. I am sorry now about the summary. I got that in early. I thought I'd just mix up where I apologise in the episode. I'm never going to yeah. stop apologising. No, no. Note ridiculous. on spoilers before we crack on. This is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously heavy spoilers for the book Masquerade. Obviously. But we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series. And we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Thundering up several steps of stairs holding flaming torches. Excellent. You know, fans hunting down Pratchett's final novel in an angry mob. Yeah. So. Follow up. Have we got some missives from the round world, Francine? We have. I've been so organised recently with these. I say recently, last episode and this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple that are a couple of weeks old because I'm not that organised. 
Same. Um, <laughs> friend of the show, Courtney Dreher. I've never tried to say her name before. Courtney uh, says, this is random, but I arbitrarily decided to learn Welsh. And so I've seen a couple of possible references in Discworld names. Why should I choose this? Quell, maybe, means goodbye. <laughs> it might be a stretch, but quell sounds a lot like quell. The other one is the Welsh word for carrot is moron, which made me properly lull. I feel like that is obviously a reference. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. I like that. The, 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 the Welsh word I didn't say right is H-W-Y-L, by the way, if anybody wants to shout at me about the specifics. Quill? Quill, maybe. Um, and then uh, Zinc Stoat on Reddit uh, told us about Death's Tree Swing, which was one of your favourite things, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, in Back in uh, the one with Susan. Soul Music. It? Soul Music, thank you. They linked to an article about such a tree swing, and it has illustrations, I'll link it. But it says, uh, the famous tree swing picture depicting a tyre and rope swing in various states of dysfunctionality illustrates the pitfalls of poor product design or poor customer service and, fa- and the dangers of failing to properly listen to customers and interpret their needs. So basically, it's just an increasingly more complex, ridiculous tire swing um, in line eventually with what Death managed to construct. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that. We also... We also... Uh, more, more relevant to this book, we have... Um, I'm not sure this is a missive exactly, but I'm going to share it with everybody anyway. Harp Molly has a video where she did a harp rendition of the Masochism Tango by Tom Lehrer. And we were talking about Tom Lehrer last week. And it's lovely and I love it very much. And so I'm going to link that for everybody to see. It is fantastic. Um, Thank you, Harp Molly. uh, And now they did tell me how to pronounce this, but I've forgotten. Sonder Vogel. Uh, Sonder Vogel. Fogel explains Salt Cellar's name, which is actually a reference to something. Of course it is. It's Pratchett. Um, Salt Cellar seems to be based on Antonio Salieri as depicted in the movie Amadeus. Uh, brackets, which although somewhat entertaining, historically is absolute nonsense. Uh, his name meaning Salt Cellar, like seller of salt. Someone who sells salt rather than a salt cellar. I only watched the movie Amadeus because for some reason Colt Steele, who did the web development course I oh, yeah. did, is like weirdly obsessed with it. So when he was oh. teaching APIs and how to do like uh, JavaScript lists that will rank stuff in different ways, he sure. kept using Amadeus as an example of like the highest rated movie. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and it is very entertaining, if total nonsense. Good. Um, and then finally, uh, by email, from Stephen Wood, we have uh, operas regarding the fact we haven't watched any operas. Given your physical location, I would have thought you might enjoy Peter Grimes by Britain, um, which also has queer overtones. I always support a queer overtone. As you always say, Joanna, everything needs more gay and eyebrows. Uh, or perhaps his version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And lastly, he says, it is 30 years this month since I met a very good friend of mine who is also a regular listener to the pod brackets we bonded over our love of Pratchett not sure if you do requests I'd say we don't usually but I like this email yep so but a shout out to Tom Peach in Helensburg from me would be great if you do hi Tom so hi Tom happy friendiversary friendiversary 30 years is pretty good yeah that is good next year I'm gonna hit 20 years with my uh, oldest friend Becky and she's really upset about that so I'm reminding her every opportunity not because like she hates me, I don't think, just because the passing of time is appalling. Yeah, no, it is very stressful. Oh, one other one that I missed that came in a couple of weeks ago from Elizabeth. 
who is just catching up to interesting times and has met Hex and said, I absolutely cannot carry on with my day until I've told someone somewhere that the word Hex sounds exactly like the Dutch word for witch, Hex with a K. Oh, cool. Uh, so Unseen University is just now discovering the value and limitless capacity of the witch. Um, and it's sort of, I'm not sure if this is intentional, but it's great joy. And I'm assuming that means that Hex and Hex have Your similar etymology. You're yes. telling me you didn't go straight down that rabbit hole, around. I am trying to have some restraint when it comes to etymological rabbit holes on the basis that there are only so many hours in the day and I'm replaying the Spyro games right now. I was nearly late for work the other day because I was looking up Salieri, so I think that's fair. <laughs> Your ability to procrastinate, honestly, just it's beautiful. I love it so much. I love you so much. I'd put it down to band oh thank you, I love you too. I'd put it down to boundless curiosity, but honestly it is just uh or largely a complete disinterest in whatever I'm meant to be doing. Pretty standard for me. <laughs> this is why I try and always be doing five tasks at once. Mm-hmm. Very few things get done, but what else are you doing right now? Um uh, I no, can't see your hands. Are you doing crochet or something? No, this I tend to be quite focused because there's a screen and a microphone and plans and uh, notes and that's enough to that's enough I inputs see. for yeah. me. All the sensors are being bombarded. Yes. Also yes. I'm thinking about food. Always. Always. <laughs> right. Um shall we actually talk about Masquerade then? Francine, would you like to tell us what happened last week in Masquerade? Absolutely. Previously on Masquerade. Nanny and Granny arrive in Angmorpork. They visit the opera house where the ghost has struck again, strangling Dr. Undershaft under stage and swinging him into the limelight with superb dramatic timing. Our witches' thumbs are pricking, and having dealt with their suspicions in different directions, they reunite to collect Nanny's royalties with only a little resistance. Newly enriched, they're quickly empoured by a shopping spree and a steamy supper that ends in an insane investment. Meanwhile, Agnes goes through the looking glass into a disappointing world of damp drafts and drifting music. She's no sooner lost than she's found by unlikely hero Walter Plinge, who gives her a clue that's confusing and clear in equal measure. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. We should have a pit orchestra, is what this section of the book has taught me. Yeah. Um, I assume we can stretch that in the. <laughs> if we can get a couple In our more small patrons. residences and minus budget (laughs) if we could get a couple more listeners if you haven't signed up to patreon already please do so we can get an orchestra (laughs) little bijou an orchestra (laughs) lovely little orchestra in the country for weekends (laughs) i've just remembered why we shouldn't record in the evenings i'm a dick yeah me too (laughs) okay you've cheered me right up again though so we're all right I, I, I'm probably going to cut it out so listeners I was very grumpy for the first one minute of our recording because I just had a hell of a time trying to make the internet work but but then I told Francine about my underwear and now she's happy Ex- yes I've smeared ink all over here excellent well done cool so do you want to tell us what happened in this part of the book which is so much stuff in this section many things happen hmm do you want to tell us which ones? Yes, I'll tell you all of them. Okay. All of them. All of the things. The librarian arrives at the opera house and the orangutan organist lends a few spare parts to the vandalised organ. Agnes tells Andre she believes Walter Plinge is the haunting horror of the house, much to his amusement. Granny and Nanny shop for menswear before swinging by the opera house to hunt down Grebo. Agnes tells Christine about her Plinge theory 
and is once again met with hysterics. The ghost confronts the girls, but runs away just in time for Plinge to arrive, proving he cannot be the spectacular spectre. Our dramatis personae prepare for a party before the big performance. Grebo gets human to go along with Granny. Henry Lawsey swats up and drags along his muttering mother. Saltzella sulks and spots conspicuous watchmen. And the Lady Esmeralda arrives as Nanny scumbles the sergeants. <laughs> Scumble as a verb, love it. Let's keep that. I'm aware they're not actually sergeants before we get any emails. That's fine. Sotzella rallies the troops to rouse the ghost if he shows his mask, and Andre announces a substitution as the librarian confronts a bow tie and takes a seat at the organ, apparently having insisted on it, though in truth convinced by Andre who has other plans to go awry. Granny inspects her newly purchased box eight as Nanny confronts Mrs. Plinge and gets a mild concussion for her trouble. The opera begins with Agnes in the chorus as Nanny chases Plinge and after asking after Walter sends her to the land of Scumble. Walter Plinge, now masked and ghostly, climbs into box eight and Grebo gives chase. The librarian plays on as the chase ensues with the audience distracted as the ghost and Grebo leap to the chandelier. Saltzella declares the ghost's true identity and the mob joins the chase as Granny finds Walter on the roof. She passes his master Grebo and asks the feline fellow to lead the mob on a run, a difficult job as his knees begin to reverse and his morphogenic field reasserts. Walter and Annie take refuge in the cellars as the mob are certain they've taken down someone. Detritus briefly finds a mask but loses it uh, in what was definitely a large bird's claws. In the cellars, Nanny finds Walter's musical home and the hummable fruits of his labour. As the interval rages on, Agnes and Granny meet backstage and establish that Walter might be the ghost, but he's certainly no murderer. Walter insists to Nanny that it's wrong to tell lies or tell anyone about the room with the sacks full of money belonging to the ghost. Granny and Nanny hide in Bucket's office. Uh, No, Granny and Agnes even hide in Bucket's office, and discuss awry accounts until Andre interrupts. Our mysterious muso reveals he's not the murderer and is in fact a secret policeman, while Granny explains the concept of multiple ghosts. Up in the flyloft, Nanny finds a half-cut chandelier and confronts a ghostly saltzella. Down in the wings, as the next act begins, Bucket speaks to a confused basilica who should be on stage, and Nanny joins the ballet dancers as the great unmasking of the opera moves forward a scene or two. Uh, the Basilica on stage prepares to perform, but Agnes takes a risk and stops the show. Walter, hiding in the cellars, panics until Granny finds him and hands him a mask. On stage, Salt Cellar, no longer in disguise as Basilica, takes Agnes hostage. Granny confronts him, stops a steel sword, and Agnes gives Walter a mask that he cannot be taken off. The newly confident Walter defeats Salt Cellar, who delivers a dramatic and operatic death scene. With the ghost gone, Walter takes on the newly vacated role of musical director and unfortunately believes that a currently conveniently unconscious Christine should still have a starring role much to Agnes's upset. Bucket is joyous as he learns that Walter's new music might just make money and Basilica throws off his Brindisian heritage to return to the life of Henry Slug, much to the joy of Mrs. Lawsey who knew him long ago. The opera ends as Agnes sings and Salsella faces the Red Death. Granny and Nanny head home, picking up Grebo on the way. Agnes heads back for a bit and helps out Granny and Nanny as, at night, these three meet again for the first time. Beautiful. One note... I would like to put forward climbing into box eight as uh, an innuendo. Yep, cool. Add that to the list. He climbed into box eight, if you know what I mean. (laughs) I climbed into box eight last night, (laughs) if you know what I mean. (laughs) I I played Spyro for three hours. That's what I mean. I see. (laughs) Quotes. Quotes, quotes, quotes. Yours is first. Yours is first and much longer. Uh, Yeah. Um, I noted I, that down as yours instead of as mine, as I read. <laughs> I greatly appreciate you putting this one to one side for me because it's... Uh, it's very you. It's, 
I like reading out Granny's big moment. She always gets a good big speech. Oh, she does. The trouble is, see, that if you do know right from wrong, you can't choose wrong. You just can't do it and live. So if I was a bad witch, I could make Mr. Saltzella's muscles turn against his bones and break them where he stood. If I was bad, I could do things inside his head, change the shape he thinks he is, and he'd be down on what had been his knees and begging to be turned into a frog. If I was bad, I could leave him with a mind like a scrambled egg, listening to colours and hearing smells if I was bad. Oh yes, there was another sigh, deeper and more heartfelt. But I can't do none of that stuff. That wouldn't be right. She gave a deprecating little chuckle, and if Nanny Og had been listening, she would have resolved as follows. That no maddened cackle from Black Alice of infamous memory, no evil little giggle from some crazed vampire whose morals were worse than his spelling, no side-splitting guffaw from the most inventive torturer was quite so unnerving as a happy little chuckle from a granny weatherwax about to do what's best. Very good. Very terrifying, nanny, uh, granny, rather. That's possibly the most explicit she's been about what she's not doing. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> and we're all very grateful. Mine is another granny moment, but much more compact. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's page three. 66 to page 367 um as things are wrapping up for most of the cast basically agnes cries but what about me oh them as makes the endings don't get them this is granny yeah i like it it very much sums up the type of which granny is yes absolutely the the kind of well, the puppet master isn't it mm. which we'll come back to um i i hate myself for saying this joanna but we did miss helicopter and loincloth watch oh god so. sorry i zoomed us right past it as if we were in a helicopter <laughs> i take it from that you didn't find any helicopters i was saying like a meta thing a bit within yeah, yeah, a bit yeah, yeah, yeah. uh well nanny mentioned that she's got her uh, broomstick in a cleaning cupboard and as we all know broomsticks are basically just helicopters yes and <clears> i assume <throat> that's how the the mask was nicked uh, detritus is present, which I believe encourages the implication of a loincloth. Much Even though it was specified he's wearing a suit. Yeah. Yeah, cool. But he's a troll, so I feel like he, he, he's got his inner loincloth. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Covering the crotch of his soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, briefly, the other little bits that we keep track of is that the librarian is not explained. He's just present in all his orangutangy glory sure sure missing a neck uh oh and it, not really relevant but i was keeping track of years and things and seeing if i can get an idea of timeline and one of the bottles of champagne is from the year of the insulted goat which we now know is a very good year for a vintage i just like the phrase the year of the insulted goat it's one of my favorites so far yes it is very good Yes. Um, it's not worth its own little bit, actually, but uh, one of the cool names mentioned was uh, Reg Plenty. I thought it was another good rolling Ooh, off the tongue one. I like that. Reg Plenty. So, char- cool. speaking of characters, obviously, we'll revisit a couple sure. here and there. Uh, we can finally say that Salt Cellar did those murders ah. because we've been avoiding saying that for the last two episodes. Just in case, yeah. Hope you're all grateful. He did it. Yeah. I even edited things a bit. 
<laughs> yes, you did, which makes it very hard to deliver. I, I'm going to talk more about the foreshadowing, especially when it comes to Salt Cellar a bit later. But yes, so our three suspects, Salt Cellar, Andrea, I feel like Salt Cellar, Andrea and Walter are built up as the three sus- suspects and yeah, two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, for sure. Um, Salt Cellar is, do you know what I saw? Oh, I forgot to look into this properly. Um, I saw on a particularly whingy Reddit post from someone who just really hated Masquerade for some reason that he mentioned that Pratchett had done a Rickman spoof and I can only imagine he meant that Salt Zala was meant to be Alan Rickman. Right. In like his dry, I don't know, maybe I completely got that wrong, but I, I just read that earlier when I was looking something else up. Yeah, I um, mean, he would make, Alan Rickman would make a really good Salt Zala. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm now just te- checking that uh, Alan Rickman wasn't in the uh, movie about Salieri. In case oh, I've I massively forgotten that. No, yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, um, I might have. It, it just said Rickman, so it might have been referencing something else. I might have been not even talking about Salt Salah. I have no idea. But that was where my mind went when I read that. Um, I mean, like, you know I'm not one for fan casting, but I could see that one working. Okay. Except it would be too obvious that he's the villain, because that's what Rickman plays. Well, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's what Rickman played well. Sorry, I yes, forgot for did. a second that Alan Rickman was dead, and now I'm just going to get depressed in the call. Oh, I'm sorry. I should never remind you that Alan Rickman's dead mid-recording. <laughs> we know I about this front scene. Now I have to reenact half of Dogma. I'm not going to do that. I am aware you'll never be, speak to me again. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm going to talk about Salzella a bit more later. Andre, it's discovered, is a secret policeman. Yes. One of the Cable Street particulars. Yes, which is an interesting choice, as we'll find out later. Yes, I, I feel like at this point, obviously, it's a reference to the Baker Street Irregulars. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, C- we'll Cable come- Street is relevant to the police again later, basically. We'll come back to that. Uh, but I like the fact that, you know, um, th- something I've talked about previously, that as we get further into Discworld, the world building gets more and more interesting because it... Mm. He uses stuff even so this isn't a watch book, but we get Nobby and Detritus and we get that the fact that there is this kind of secret police, investigative police side of it now as well. Yes, and that Vimes is quite good at using Nobby and Detritus as red herrings. Yeah, and it's just nice to see the watch growing kind of off screen as it were. Mm. Especially because we're about to revisit it in the next book and it's been not ages since Men at Arms, but it's been a minute. Yeah. Been a couple of books. Yeah. Um, and then we have Walter, Walter Plinge, yes. who uh, you kept saying his name, obviously, during the summary, and I've just realised his name is horrible. <laughs> Plinge. Plinge. <Ooh>. Plinge. <laughs> I take quite joy in, quite a lot of joy. I liked Plinge theory. Yes, that was good. I did like that. Um, I One thing, obviously, we have the whole big reveal of who Walter is. Mm. Um I don't like that he becomes nastier, although I suppose it does somewhat make sense. I think he he becomes a a theatre director, doesn't he? Yeah. I understand why they did it. It would have been nice. Yeah, it would have been nice if he'd kind of at least had a bit more sympathy for Agnes, but it seems like as soon as he took on the role, he was upset. Yeah, it, it kind of loses empathy. Obviously, mm. we know not all theatre directors. Hashtag. Do we have any, if we have any theatre directors listening? I will be surprised for some reason. I don't know. Uh, we've got friends in theatre who listen. Okay, sure. I yeah, also the... like that Walter would take the fire out of the house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that was a that was an interesting bit of 
not even foreshadowing because it was like not said on screen and then three pages later it was revealed what it was so yeah just a tiny bit of suspense there um my walter note was that he's dragged he moves like he's being dragged along by his head which works well for me because that's how pigeons walk isn't it they put their heads forward and then they yeah. catch up with it so that's what i'm imagining now happening that with slightly more flailing of limb <laughs> yes and then obviously we have the witches we have nanny granny and agnes oh for agnes with the witches well she'd sort of joined them on the mountain by the end of the book so to speak no not so to speak she's literally there yes <laughs> <laughs> climbed into box aid if you know what i mean <laughs> join them on the mountain yeah get my drift yeah. <laughs> engaging in a bit of plunge theory Ugh, no <laughs> sorry <laughs> Too far. It's because it sounds like plunger. It, yeah, I think that's it. Plinge with his plunger. Mm. Plunging. Yeah. Stop now, stop. <laughs> I know I started it, but stop. Um, Sorry, <laughs> Nanny. Big fan of Nanny. I like that we get a moment of Granny reflecting on Nanny's particular sort of magic. Yes, it's nice when Granny does occasionally acknowledge that Nanny is a very good witch in her own right. Yeah. We'll- very effective. Ignore my previous rants about, you know, Nanny is actually the better witch because obviously that was mostly just silliness. But they are very powerful in different ways. And it's very rare that we see Granny acknowledge how outranked she is in specific things. Yeah, I mean, even if I never quite agreed with the Nanny is the better witch thing, I can very much admit that Granny would not be the, get the opportunity to have these showdowns if it weren't for Nanny. Yeah. She never insinuated herself in the opera house in this way. Or she might have done it. It would have taken a lot longer. A lot more people might have died first. Yeah. It's uh, it's the thing where they really work best together and they only really yeah. need the third to have something to bounce off to get to and from Poor each Agnes. other. <laughs> Poor Agnes. Um, there's also, I don't know, interesting, but I never really came to a massive conclusion other than I don't like fat jokes. Mm-hmm. But I did find myself questioning why... An almost identical joke is made about Nanny that was made about Agnes right at the beginning, which is uh, when Nanny's joined the ballet dancers, the little fat one spun like a top and moved across the floor like one too, bits of her anatomy trying to achieve local orbit. Mm. And I don't know why, but that never bothered me quite as much as the jokes about Agnes did at the beginning. If I were to speculate, it's because it's part of a slapstick scene. Also, I think it's the fact that Nanny as a character is very comfortable with who she is swinging around yeah with her swinging around with her size and her shape and she's never tried to make herself smaller yeah she is she is very comfortably nanny whereas agnes is not comfortable with it so when the book makes the jokes about agnes it's very much at her as opposed to i think with nanny it's more with her yes i'm aware that these aren't real people that are being mocked or not here well, I think for the sake of this podcast, we'd better pretend they are, because well, otherwise yes. we just sound very silly. I sound very silly anyway, thank you very much. Well, in, in a good way. Yes, Granny, um, or as she was briefly known for five minutes as a teenager, Endemonidia. 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 Endemon. Endemonidia. Yeah, no, I can see why that didn't last. I wonder if it's meant to be like endemonidia. There we go. Like endometriosis? Yeah, sure. That's probably what she was basing it off, not demon. (laughs) Uh, Never pick a name you can't scrub the floor in. I respect it. I do. Mm -hmm. As much as I dislike uh, scrubbing floors. 
You can imagine her having also made it up to make Agnes feel better as well, though. Yep. And just throwing some syllables together in her brain as she goes along. Because it's not being not being funny. Esmeralda's already a pretty badass name. It's not an Agnes, is it? Yeah. Esmeralda's in the same land as Padita already. Yeah. But then I could also see Granny doing it based on the granny, the young Granny yeah. we met in Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. I'd say it's a bit of a toss-up. And yes, Granny doesn't practice psychiatry. She practices headology. And there is a, I like that we kind of got an example of the difference there. The, the specific example as well, um, a psychiatrist mm. will try and en- endeavour to convince a man that monsters don't exist, whereas Granny would uh, give him a chair to stand on and a heavy stick. And we will later meet another character who takes that exact tack. Yes. And it, it's, a, it's very nice because it's a very different sort of character that does it. And yes, with some core similarities, but for yeah. sure, not the not Granny two point Yeah, I'll be disappointed that we don't really get to see these two characters bounce off each other because I feel like that would be fun. Yeah. Oh, and the Granny gets one other really badass moment, which is obviously she grabs the sword and it doesn't hurt her, mm. and mm. Every, and even Nanny's speculating about how she managed it, and. Um, was it, uh, Nanny says you weren't her and Granny says not my fault I didn't have time yes <laughs> which I respect because obviously working in a kitchen you'll do things like chop a bit of finger off and go oh I don't have time to deal with that and just stick a glove on and hope for the best until you can finally deal with it later which I should like I should like clarify is not good and it's oh yeah don't the, do that the, guys the, the sign of a really unhealthy work culture <laughs> like yeah don't do that, guys. I'm just saying I have done that. <laughs> Having seen you at the end of one of those shifts, I would yeah. strongly recommend people just get a get a job where they're allowed to stop the bleeding. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying I aspire to this. I'm saying I yeah, relate yeah, to no, this. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, let's not set a bad example for the listeners. Listeners, don't cut bits of yourself off. Unless you like, have one of those powers where you could wait until later before you start bleeding and like, get the bandages ready. Like. Yeah, I enjoyed cool. that moment for Granny. That was fun. And then who else have we got? Who else have we got? Agnes. We've got Agnes, um, who kind of very grudgingly comes to term with witchiness, doesn't she? She does. There's a nice moment earlier in the section where she is starting to come to terms with it. Uh, well, and by starting to come to terms with it, I mean she's very much insisting that she is not becoming a witch. Yes. Because Granny is pointing out to her that she is uh and granny explains to her like you know you're going to be a witch because you are a witch and it's all very well you don't want to but you've got more important things to be getting on with right now so just do that yes and have your identity crisis afterwards oh i guess it's like a parallel to the to the sword hand yeah very much so Mm. but then also agnes gets the interesting moment that i guess kind of makes me understand why so much is made of her fatness it feels like a lot of of her fatness is so this joke can be made at the end of the opera not being over until she sings that final note yes at least he didn't explicitly say it i'm so glad that it was left to be a moment where you go ah ah, yeah yeah um i also wanted to and didn't have time to look up the truth or lack thereof in people being able to sing high enough to shatter things obviously they wouldn't be able to do as much damage as agnes could but um i feel like i have read somewhere before that it's possible but under very controlled circumstances <laughs> um but yeah i don't like agnes's ending for this book really no 
it's not what she wanted and it sort of treats as if what she wanted is silly and she's grown up by coming to join the witches now yes i feel like after she'd had that moment with walter plinge though what she wanted wouldn't have worked you know yeah but it doesn't feel like it was totally her choice to give up and go back i think she was it wasn't but maybe that's you know that's kind of what would happen isn't it yeah i would mild spoiler for listeners but we'll see agnes again yeah and so, which is why i'm not bitching about the ending it's just not my favorite ending for a character so let's move on to Gribo. yes Gribo gets to be human again isn't that nice for him no <laughs> okay no it's really not <laughs> he hates it poor Gribo. it's not worth one kipper it is turning out to be a very busy night for a single kipper but as I pointed out in uh, Witches Abroad, I, for some reason, have a fondness for the moments of Grebo having to go human yeah, and the weirdly lascivious description of him. Mm. <laughs> like, obviously, this, this, the decision was made. And I think because there's not a lot of handsome men in the Discworld, as in not explicitly handsome, I think once Pratchett yeah. made the decision that Grebo was going to be hot, he kind of went, all right, well, I'm just going to have a lot of fun describing hot Rebo then because I don't do yeah. that a lot. The only other one I can think of is Victor. Very good looking, Victor Tugelmund. Yeah, and Carrot, I mean, but not in the well, same yeah. way. Yeah, Carrot. You can't sexualise ca- Carrot, that's weird. Yeah, Carrot is not lasciviously handsome. No. <laughs> lasciviously I would like handsome. to see him try to spell it. <laughs> Lasciviously handsome sounds like a really bad name. Lasciviously handsome with an insouciant moustache. <gasps> oh, yeah, Henry Lawsey and his mother. Oh, yes. This is two of my just favourite Discworld background characters we've ever come across. It is a really fun lens to watch a lot of the final events through. Yes, yes. Uh, there's something very relatable about it as well. Oh, for sure. Like anything complicated I'm watching, I'm always like, have I missed something? Is this meant to be like inexplicable at this point? Or have I have I missed something already? Oh, God. But now my arm is stapled to the chair. <laughs> you really need to stop stapling yourself to things when you watch stuff. But I'm so bored. <laughs> that is not how you should process boredom, Francine. <sighs> yeah. Look at Reddit. That's what I do, and that's why I'm confused about what's happening in this film. <laughs> I've just accepted I will never fully pay attention to a film, and I have to really love it and watch it 18 times to fully grasp the plot. But then I'll memorise the whole thing and never get it out of my brain. That's true. That's true. Um, anyway, yes, Henry Lawsey and his mother are very sweet. It's just really lovely writing and really, really human characters in the midst of a lot of chaos and nonsense. Yes. I like how down-to-earth his mother insists on staying. Yeah. She won't have any part of this. And I like, you know, Henry sort of trying to do social mobility fire a law firm run by zombies. So the hope of promotion by dead men's shoes is never going to happen. No. Oh, and of course, I've already mentioned them, but it's just nice to see Nobby and Detritus again. Like I said, it rounds out the world sort of having the Watchmen showing up. Yes. Yeah. Um, And they're being terrible at their job. (laughs) Detritus is at least trying. Nobby is not. Detritus means very, very well, bless him. He's, he's, he's thinking it through. Yep. 
Um, I don't. I didn't bother marking anything for locations. We don't go anywhere new. We're pretty okay, much good. just at the opera house. I just turned the page and I was like, "Oh, did I print this out before you'd finished it?" No. Okay. Good. No, <laughs> I couldn't really justify putting in any locations unless I talked about the location of Granny's new privy. What about the cellar. Yep, found some of the opera cellars there, full of scenery, candles, and a small organ. Yeah, pretty cool. And the roof is a roof. Yep. Now you were right. Um, <laughs> You made the right call and I tried to stand by it and I made it worse. <laughs> Apologies for the listeners that were hoping I would devote 10 minutes to the cellar. But oh, I'm trying to no. save those 10 minutes for an inevitable tangent later in the episode. Yes, when we get hungry again. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to think about food. Right. Um, do you want five minutes before we do the second half? I forgot to say earlier when we're talking about Agnes and fat jokes and things, that the whole thing about the like, oh, she's got a wonderful personality and then she's got lovely hair. And it's reminded me of the song Personality from the Fallout 4 soundtrack, I don't know. If, yes. Where it's a double entendre for breasts instead of white. <laughs> Think of all the books about the various looks. What was it made of the toast of berry? She had a well-developed personality yeah <laughs> not my favorite one no but, quite funny. <laughs> but it's been in my head all afternoon <laughs> and that just i just remembered it had been why it had been in my head all afternoon um anyway anyway boy so, doing all right boy's fine there's a okay. live stream about the new guild wars expansion that's coming out in february so he's quite happy this is why you date nerds Jack's upstairs reading sci-fi. <laughs> so I'm treating myself to a wine as it's at this point on a Friday. And also if I drink more coffee, I'm never sleeping. Yeah, well, I'm just never sleeping. That's 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 who you are as a person. For me, there's still hope. Infuriatingly, I slept quite well earlier in the week when I didn't have any coffee after like 3pm. But let's forget that. <laughs> Try after 6pm. Usually I do stop after about 6 or 7, um, but I'm recording so. Do you also stop Diet Coke? Yes. Okay, good. Diet Coke, I find, is worse somehow, and so I stop drinking that afternoon-ish, usually. It's the bubbles. They get you excited. <laughs> That'll be it. <laughs> right. God, sorry, the video is still lagging. I'm very sorry anyone was watching video for this. This must be annoying, but there's nothing I can do about it, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's fine. It adds a sense of je ne sais quoi. Mm. Or as the French would say, I don't know what. <laughs> Il y a un grand vide dans les PD. Un vache dans l'arbre. Où est la bibliothèque? Donde? Wait, no, is that Spanish? No, Donde esta la biblioteca is Spanish. That's it, yeah. Because it's the thing from community. Me llamo Tibon, la araña discoteca. Qui me père Francine? J'ai huit ans. I still remember. I am eight years old. Because that is... When I learned to say that sentence, I guess. Do you remember that one song? Oh, that was one of the ones we used to do. In I did French club when I was in like year four. So before we started doing it at school, uh, because the woman who ran the French club also happened to live a street away from us, which meant that she could take me home after French club and mum nice. didn't have to put me up from school. Good, good stuff. But that was mostly like doing lots of the songs, like Sur le Pont d'Avignon. Now I've got a. Dites-moi pourquoi 
but that's from South, uh, South Pacific. And yes. And the Frere Jacques, obviously. And then there's like, uh, c'est la vie, c'est comme ça, c'est la vie. Don't remember the rest I of it. I kind of remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> Problem is, if I hear c'est la vie, I immediately go to Bewitched. And then, of course, you've got... Non, je ne regrette rien. <sighs> that song will always remind me of the smell of Café Rouge. Yeah. One of those weird sense memories. Um, Café Rouge, which is now gone. Oh, I know. I, I don't know up, if it's gone from everywhere or whether it's just gone from very. It's gone but... from our town. I grew up going there. That's where we used to go mm-hmm. for dinners as a family. That's where I learned to eat. Not where I learned to eat dinner properly, but like where I was taught to behave nicely in a restaurant and things. It's my first legal job. Oh, yeah. First place I had beer with a meal as well, I think. That was... Aww. I remember having a birthday there and mum getting me a bagpuss cake. Oh, <laughs> bagpuss cake, nice. I was so happy about my bagpuss bag cake until I realised the pores were made of marzipan. Yeah, marzipan. Ruined so many bagpusses for me. Okay. Cool. <laughs> None of this is... What? <laughs> We're making a podcast, Francie. Are we? Oh, no. <laughs> but we've been talking nonsense for over an hour. Please keep all of that in. <laughs> little bits oh, we liked. Should we sure. talk about the little bits we liked? Do you want to talk about uh, looking up words, Francine? Oh, yeah. So Henry, uh, what's his chops? Who Henry Lawsey. Thank you. Who you particularly liked was reading his programme with the help of a dictionary. Uh, because he didn't understand quite a lot of the words, like blandishments, for instance. And I quite like the quote, Henry lived his life in permanent dread of being asked questions later, <laughs> um, which I definitely did at school. Like this Henry right now is kind of me when I was trying to pay attention at school. It popped back into my head on page 319 when I read the sentence, erratic though his thinking might have been, it was no match for Nanny Og's meretricious duplicity. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> what does meretricious mean? Apparently attractive, but having no real value, or archaically and enchantingly, relating to or characteristic of a sex worker. Ah, perfect for Nanny Og. Mm-hmm. Um, and a meretricious to you too. <laughs> And to all a good night. <laughs> Insouciant, meretricious. This is definitely one of those books where I'm like, mm, I'm just going to double. I think from context I can get it, but let's just double check that. It's also a book that once you've checked pronunciation is incredibly satisfying to read aloud. Yes. Anyway, who's is next? Um, oh, you wanted to talk a bit as a, like a sub point to this one about class snobbery, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it was just it was another sort of Henry Lawsey moment where... Um, when they're watching the ballet with Nanny Og joining in and he's sort of not sure what's meant to be going on, but he really wants to Mm. know what's going on. And I really love the sort of, I don't know, it's a bit of a class thing, but the people who must be seen to know what's going on. So they're all saying to them, "Uh, yes, yes, they, uh, they tried this in Pseudopolis. Yes. (laughs) Really good demonstration of not following the advice. Um, Better to be, better to stay silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and confirm it yes um when you're not sure loudly saying your guess is not always the best you say that that says says us i mean that's what we do constantly but (laughs) we're not trying to move up in the class (laughs) (laughs) 
But then if you say it confidently enough, people will believe you. I can present two wildly different arguments for the motivations of Richard III in the opening speech of the play, and both of them could seem completely correct if I just say it confidently enough. Sure, but most people will believe you, but the one person who knows what they're on about is probably the one person you want to convince, and they will know you're talking shit in the case of something like this, the quorum chase or whatever. You know? Well, yeah. but also it's Subjective I've... stuff, sure. I'll see your way through it. But um, yes. There is nothing I won't bullshit my way through as this podcast happily oh, demonstrates. <laughs> Fortean experience, Francine. Oh yeah. Um so the page two nine one, the bowl of caviar flew out of his nervous fingers in the Grebo and caused a Fortean experience somewhere in the stalls. <laughs> uh, we've talked about the Fortean times before, I think in relation to good omens. Yeah, and you gave us a obscure reference finial on the Fortean. Is that right? Um, it's a, Anyway, for anyone who's forgotten, it's a monthly magazine that focuses on obscure happenings. And a well-known example is Reigns of Fish. In fact, it's so well-known that I found a 14 times page, which is an index called Falls of Fish or something. And so, <laughs> or Fish Falls, something ridiculous. Anyway, I'll link to that in the show notes. Oh, not another Reign of Fish. <laughs> we couldn't afford a Reign of Fish. Reign of Terror, Reign of Fish. <laughs> reign of Frog. Just one. Just one. But it was a real It's nuisance. trying really hard. <laughs> Uh, yours, you go. Um, oh, yes, yeah, so there's a Sherlock Holmes reference that uh, quote from Nobby. When you have ruled out the impossible, what is left, however improbable, ain't worth hanging around on a cold night wondering about when you be get, could be getting on the outside of a big drink. Yeah, yeah. Weird of him to quote someone so directly, isn't it? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, um, what is it? When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Yeah. And it's a very famous Sherlock Holmes quote, but it's a favourite because... It's, I can't remember, to be perfectly honest. I haven't read a lot of Sherlock Holmes, to be honest. Yeah, you'd like it. No, I've read the old one. I've just It's never one that I've gotten into, into. Um, but it's one that's quoted a lot and is very famous. But it's also said by Spock in Star Trek. Oh. And um, some people will say it's a Star Trek quote, and then other people will go, no, 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 because Spock was quoting Sherlock Holmes because he'd read Sherlock Holmes. And um, then the amusing round off to that is in the modern BBC series Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch one. He says that and then says that he was quoting Star Trek. Very nice. Um, (laughs) So I just enjoy the full circle of that little quote. Speaking of Star Trek, didn't someone on the Reddit discussion thread say something about modern major general being sung by one of the Star Trek? Oh, God, if I've got this wrong. It's an extract from one of the short Treks episodes. Uh, Trapped in a turbo lift, number one sings Modern Major General to Ensign Spock. There we go. I knew it. As uh, I've probably admitted before, I've never watched any Star Trek. Not through assuming it would be bad. I'm sure it's great. It just seems like something that takes quite a lot of time to get into on the level that everyone seems to be. I grew up with like Next Generation and Enterprise and things. I mean, mum obviously had a thing for John Luke Picard because she was human. I have a fond childhood memory of it and Star Trek Nemesis, which is generally thought of as one of the worst Star Trek movies, uh, but happened to be on in the cinema when we were in the States for like the first time over Christmas. And I remember sleeping through it because I was very jet lagged. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> My jet lag had worn off enough the following week to see the two towers for the first time, which I did stay awake through. Well done, you. That was a marvellous experience. Anyway, Speaking yeah. of references, though. Yes, references. There's lots of musicals referenced. Yes, there are. Which I don't really need to point out. The listeners will have probably got all of these, but as I didn't get any of the opera references. 
Joanna would like a minute to sound clever, please, if we could all indulge her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, dear listeners. Uh, we've got Guys and Trolls, obviously Guys and Dolls, Hubwood Side Story, West Side Story, Miserable Les, this play about a bloke called Les who's miserable all the time. I'm assuming that's Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, yeah. Seven Dwarfs for Seven Other Dwarfs. Uh, seven Rives for Seven Brothers. Oh, do you know what? I didn't get that one so well then. <laughs> I don't, I've never heard of that. <laughs> Um, uh, and then there's also a reference to a song, Don't Cry For Me, Genua, which I greatly enjoyed because Don't Cry For Me, Argentina is one of my favourite belt out in the shower songs. I only know that one line, actually. I, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, the truth is I never left you. All through my dark days, my sad existence. I won't actually do it. You can't belt because I asked you to turn yourself up a little bit. And <laughs> I just realised that moving back from the screen won't remove my headphones. So, yeah. And that's why I didn't start belting there. <laughs> Thank you. Much obliged. <laughs> yes, in I'm the not... early days of the podcast, Joanna sometimes forgot that the microphone was a thing. I'm enthusiastic. What can you I say? You are enthusiastic. <laughs> Something I very much agree with in person, that you should belt out random lines. But unfortunately... When recording, the microphone don't like it. Yes, I promise listeners I will not start singing Don't Cry For Me, Genua. (laughs) But yeah, I don't really know the musical Evita that well, but I really love that song. It is a lovely song. Other stuff that gets referenced, though, um, Bouncing Giggly. Excuse me. Yeah. um, Oh, I was so glad I found this because I vaguely remembered this story and I couldn't find it anywhere until I started Googling Bouncing Giggly instead of the the keywords I was trying to go for and someone on Reddit had done this for me thank you Um, but it's the tale of bouncing Tosca which I was then able to look up and find a proper source on Um, this supposedly occurred at the Lyric Opera of Chicago and involved a British soprano as Tosca she was supposed to leap to her death from the walls of uh, Castel Sant'Angelo usually the actress lands on a mattress but stage workers had thoughtfully improved her safety by replacing the mattress with a trampoline the result was that Tosca appeared two or three times from behind the wall, having uh, thrown herself off. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eva Turner has admitted to being that Tosca, apparently, and I will link to a little thing about that. So. What a helpful trampoline. <laughs> Everybody's studiously ignoring the fact that the, uh, <laughs> the, the suicide <laughs> was reappearing. I oh, know yeah, I did hear that they tried it like that in Pseudopolis. <laughs> that's another it was so depressing for the to google I, I was trying to find this story and i think i can't remember where i heard it first it might be I, I feel like it was in a horrible histories or something yeah but i was trying to google it and i kept finding like stories of people who'd been badly hurt in romeo and juliet like juliet tumbling from the balcony or random people falling from balconies in the theater i was like oh god don't put balconies in your theater lads. <laughs> uh, anyway so that's funny and not death which was nice <laughs> excellent summation there speaking of death speaking of death oh salt cellar's death scene god damn well done it was it hit that perfect bit of comedy where you all if it had stopped a paragraph earlier it would have just felt a bit silly and overdone yeah but it went on long enough that it went back around to funny again yeah and you have to admit based on what that disgruntled Redditor said, that Alan Rickman would have done that on stage very well because the man could ham. Oh, he could. He could ham. Um, But it is the moment where he does the, uh, and another thing. Yes. He sort of died two or three times and ah, ah, 
As for people who attend the opera. I feel like this is how both of us will die. Just like, actually, no, I forgot to say. <laughs> wait, no, wait. <laughs> that is absolutely how I'm going out. On a um, I don't know if there's any, like, famous examples of, like, the worst culprits here, but it's very much a trope, isn't it, of people taking far too long to die, stumbling around the stage. and It's uh, definitely with Shakespeare, like Romeo and Juliet. Um, Hamlet, there's so many dramatic death scenes that if you get a production where every actor really wants to go all in on it, then it's just adds an extra hour to the show. (laughs) (laughs) I've never had to do a death scene. I'd love to do a death scene. Grim. Grim, but it's good fun. I think I'd do it. Just like straight down, done. People I mean, would remember it for being mercifully brief. No, see, I'm the opposite. I'd go all the way. Mm. I think I see it as kind of like speeches or toasts, and that you could probably convince yourself that's what people want to hear, like this long, drawn out, thoughtful thing. But really, people just want it done. Well, yeah, true. But then I'm speaking as somebody who really believes that almost every bit of entertainment should be significantly shorter so that is very true you are very very hard on the uh hour and a half for a film at most please i well i don't have much of an excuse for stuff i'm watching at home but for other things i i I drink a lot of caffeine and i don't have like a massive bladder and i'm always gonna panic about needing to go for a wee i used to bring books everywhere when i was a kid and didn't care about looking rude but Theatre I'm all right with because A, intervals, and B, if it's really shit, then it's funny. Yes. If it's a really bad play, then you can kind of take a lot of amusement in the fact that it's really bad. If it's good, then I don't know, I'm slightly more engaged because the people are physically there. Yeah. Although it can still drag. I'll tell you what, I, I've I've been to like longish stand-up performances and I really enjoy that. I think it's very much the rapid fire stuff I'm cool with. Um, yeah. Even if it's a long, a long rapid fire sesh, um, I can deal with that. But it's it's cinema for me though. Like, Run P is the best app ever created. What is that? It's an app that you can put in like a film that's out in the cinema, and it will tell you like where the best points are to go and pee, and like what line of dialogue is kind of a you can go pee now, and like what will happen while you're away, and you can turn on or off spoilers but the worst because like uh, the, i don't go to the cinema often and if i do go to the cinema it's like four stuff that should be seen on the big screen which is quite often like the new marvel movies which are all like three hours long like yeah, avengers no. endgame was over three hours long i looked it up on rumpy and they were like yeah there is one two minute section where you won't miss too much maybe but really is just full from top to bottom and i was just like it seems unnecessary though i don't believe that it's three hours of like amazing this couldn't have been edited down stuff it's it's just it's, it's the big it's shiny fight scenes killer. those are all where i go pee yeah exactly yeah i fucking hate fight scenes can't be after those Ugh, God, short I'm, fight scene, I'm sorry <laughs> again we've wandered vaguely off topic topic yeah, let's we wonder about? we oh, were talking about Salzella and his death scene and then <laughs> he that's, meets... a, that's a drawn out thing i would watch <laughs> yes now that was funny and then afterwards he meets death who is in costume in his crimson mm. Uh, which is obviously the Phantom of the Opera reference uh, when the Phantom appears as death at the end of during the masquerade, beginning of Act Two, and yes. in the book appears thusly as well and is described as being bedecked in crimson with a 
uh, white mask of bone. Secondary reference, of course, um, is the fact that it's uh, in the book. It's a reference to Edgar Allan Poe's short story, "The Mask of the Red Death." Yes, uh, which is a fantastic and creepy short story for anyone who's not read it. Yeah, um, CGP Grey, who I'm always recommending to everybody, did a reading of that on his channel. I'll link to that one. Was that all my little bits? That was all my little bits. Should we talk about the bigger bits? On the outside looking in. On the outside looking in. Little talking thingy. Um, As as a kind of overall note on the book, I would say there is something really satisfying about the witches coming in from outside and untangling a situation. And for once, there's, there's no existential stakes. Their kingdom isn't at risk. They're not at risk. They just get to use their competence and like their sense of right and wrong to sort something out. Yeah, it's great, and I love that, and it's really satisfying. Um, more specifically, this question I'd, I'd like to your thoughts on. Um, you've got a choice. You can either be on the stage, just a performer, just going through the lines, or you can be outside it and know how the script works, where the scenery hangs, and where the trapdoors are. Isn't that better? I think yes. Agnes thinks same. Okay. What do you think? I think yes. I but you know and you me. say that as a performer. I like knowing how things work. Mm-hmm. My interest, even in performing, is about taking things apart and seeing how they work. It's why I like programming. It's why I like sewing. It's why I like cooking. Um, I lasted when I was like I got I did theatre at school and then dropped out and blah blah blah. I got back into theatre in my early twenties, and I lasted less than a year before I start. I went from being in it to writing stuff and learning how it all worked and picking it apart and putting it back together. And it started with me being a dick and saying, "You, uh, we were doing some sketches about local history and I didn't like a joke and what it implied in one of the sketches. And the director was a bit old fashioned. And I said to him, we should take this out. And he said, okay, write a better ending then. So I did. <laughs> and that was uh, where I started writing. For- I, I'd written before that. But yeah, as soon as I started doing part of it i wanted to do all of it and figure out how it all worked i think being on the outside looking in is more interesting yeah as a performer though i know you 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 like the limelight more than i do i would say mm-hmm. or can cope with it more i is a better way of putting it yeah um given given the choice that agnes is not really given but like given the choice between being the soprano on the stage there or being the I don't know, the witch equivalent of a stage manager. Yeah. Do you think you would still pick the latter? I would find that a harder choice, but I think I would just about still pick the latter. I think otherwise Mm. I would get bored. Yeah, that's much. And I do love attention. I really love being the centre of attention and and not just being silly about myself. I really love performing. I miss being on stage. I haven't done it for well over a year now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we need to get you back in the show. I say that, that's going to be incredibly time-consuming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love doing that stuff, but at the same time, I would never enjoy it if it was all I could do. Yeah. Whereas I can not do that, as I've shown for the last year and a half, and make stuff and work out how it all goes together instead, and that's just as fun. Hmm. That's cool. Of course, in reality, when we're doing it at the kind of um, small theatre level, that you've done it out. You can do all of it, which is awesome. You can do performing and writing and stuff. But yeah. I guess if you were like a, in in the big big leagues, you would probably have to make a choice. But yeah, so I don't. Think you I... see a lot of actors and uh, actors moving on from um, they end from up acting writing and producing and directing. Yeah. 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 Anyway, the other kind of thing on this subject, I 
liked, and it kind of ties in with like narrative stuff, is that Agnes knows what's going on. And I'm not sure whether that's her being in or out of the narrative or both, but like um, it was Walter, Agnes knew it. It wasn't knowledge in her mind exactly. It was practically something she breathed. She felt it as a tree feels the sun. Um, and then there are a few examples where the witches eventually salts Ella, although obviously he's more of a part of it than he wants to be, like way more because he dies from it. <laughs> Get annoyed with the people in the story not seeing things clearly. So like as the spectators, as the almost puppet masters by the end here. Um, so an example when Nanny's talking to Andre, it's like, how do you recognize the ghost, Mr. Policeman? Well, he's got a mask on. Really? Now say it again and listen to what you say. Good grief, you can recognise him because you don't know who he is. Life isn't neat. Whoever said there's only one ghost? That moment was such a good moment because yeah. Andre like does come across as really intelligent and competent. Yeah. But it's swept up in the narrative. Yeah. And, and Nanny and Granny, I think, have always, well, not always, but like in Witches Abroad as well, kind of like taking a step back from how the story should be and seeing it how it is. Yeah. It's quite important to them. And They're able a, to step outside yeah. of things and observe. Yeah. And I guess compared to Witches Abroad, this is pretty low stake stuff for them. So it's yeah. quite easy to see. Right. And so people wearing a similar mask, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there could be two masks. <laughs> um, yeah. That was my thought on in and out. But talk, talking of masks, actually. I think Let's you've got talk some about thoughts on masks, haven't you? Well, it's sort of, you know, following on from character dynamics last week into. You know, I like to find a big central thesis of every book. Sometimes I do better than others. Um, but masks and identity are obviously the big theme. But there's an interesting dichotomy with the mask thing of the characters who need masks and the characters who are confident in their identity no matter who they're being. Mm. So with the latter, you have Granny is always Granny, whether she's Lady Esmeralda Weatherwax or she's moving her privy. Yeah. Nanny is always nanny and has that nannyish ability to settle into every situation while continuing to be nanny. Um, Grebo as well, even as the human version, he is always inherently Grebo. Yes. Which to Granny means that he's an evil bastard and to Nanny means he's Mr. Fluffy. Absolutely. But then you have obviously the characters that rely on their masks in some way, Walter being the really obvious one. And there's an interesting sort of speculation on Walter of, well, if you were Walter, wouldn't you want to be the dashing ghost? And it's the first sort of delve into his motivation we get from it. It's the first one of the first times you see a character really trying to have empathy for him. Yeah. Really trying to empathize with him. And obviously that comes to a head with Walter being given his mask so he can be the sort of Walter slash ghost hybrid that he becomes at the end. Yeah. And Saltzella putting his mask on but by this point he is just mad salt seller and yeah. it's you put the mask on and who you are can fight who he is and it's this idea that once they've put their masks on they are really who they are because salt has been hiding this huge part of his identity which is that he's gone completely fucking mad yeah absolutely yeah i think once you've got to the stage where you're like murdering people that is probably the bigger part of your identity then and i like that as the as he comes out as this total madman and is confronting everyone, he especially when the ghost turns up and it's Walter, sort of, oh, you're dead. Oh, a ghost of a ghost. Totally unbelievable. Best operatic tradition. And you start getting more and more exclamation points in his yeah. runt. <laughs> and it's just a fun joke that it would only really work in text. 
Yeah. Same with Mr. Bucket. So yeah. You can feel a fourth exclamation point coming on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the eye starts twitching. Yeah. But then you've also got um, something interesting I found was Christine and her sort of specialised kind of cleverness. Yeah. Gosh, um, she got a lot more annoying in this part, didn't she? She didn't really do much apart from faint. I think she spends most of this section unconscious. Um, what was it? There was a little sigh from Christine and she folded up into a faint, but she managed, out Agnes noted sourly, to collapse in a way that probably didn't hurt when she hit the ground and which sewed off her dress to the best effect. Yeah. She was also like really mean to Agnes near the beginning. She was really mean to Agnes near the beginning. She she is not I'm not defending Christine in this section, but it's her kind of mask of being sweet and frivolous and sparkling Christine that simply doesn't understand that she's being an ass while having that kind of special cleverness mm. of managing to faint to show off the dress and knowing how to get to where she is. And it's a different yeah. sort of especially when you look at that then having that dynamic I was talking about last week between Agnes and Christine, especially with Granny calling Agnes out and saying, you're trying to live someone else's life for them. That's not a good thing to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I don't know. It's nice that near the end, Agnes is still like willing to go all out to save Christine from whatever Salt Cellar's likely to do. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's Even nice. She's really pissed off with her by this point. Yeah. <laughs> Understandably, really oh, yeah, pissed yeah. off with her at that point. I wonder if they keep in touch. <laughs> I like to think they might. It's like really very mismatched letters. I, so. <laughs> oh, I bet Christine writes on scented paper. Oh, yes. I like that maybe Padita's got herself some black note paper, though. <laughs> I hope so. Or at least like black around the edges. Because mm. that's probably more convenient to write on. Do you know what? I saw that in Phantom of the Opera and I was thinking to myself, oh, I'd like some black around the edges notepaper. But then I thought about it. I was like, that seems like something that maybe is for deaths. Yeah, quite possibly. Like funeral invitations, you know. Traditionally, but if it looks cool, just... Just scare people. Yeah. Yeah, Also, I would assume if I got a letter from you on black edge notepaper that you weren't writing to me to inform me of a funeral. Because I would assume... Yeah, I'd probably just text you. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like you'd text me. I mean, that seems insensitive, but listeners should know that calling to Anna would be extremely cruel. Yeah, no, don't. She would prefer the letter. Yeah. <laughs> or the text. <laughs> Look, I went through a tough year and now I just, my sister now has to open all phone calls with, no one's died. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so this whole theme of masks and identity that runs through it is brilliant. As you see, masks beginning to slip, especially with Salt Cellar. The, when he kind of comes out as the madman, his mask of being the one who's very calm and controlling and, and intelligent is what slipped. Mm. And Henry s- Slugs has slipped as well by the end there. Yes. I forgot to mention Henry in this one. Gone can cast off. <laughs> cast off, can cast off his head. <laughs> Henry casting it off at the end and just accepting being exactly who he is is a brilliant moment, which actually really brings me on to the next section, which is the payoff of the foreshadowing i talked about in episode one. Oh yeah um and i can't remember which bits i talked about as you made it into the final episode because i know we cut some because i gave away all the salt cellar stuff i only cut out that one sentence about salt cellar you said oh okay cool i can't remember what i said okay <laughs> in general but i went back to my notes um the chandelier still being hinted at throughout the entire thing and um henry lawsuit's mother points it out and then it doesn't actually fall I know. Do you know what? In my, it seems so obvious that it would that 
even though I've read this book loads of times, I still thought it would. Yeah. I just remembered that it had and it hadn't. I hope someone I went up just, and fixed it. It's so ingrained. Well, that's the thing. I kind of like that. I like thinking that maybe it did fall after everyone had gone home and they just all went yeah. in by the back next morning and went, fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Oh, well, at least we have a lot of seller money. <laughs> Um, little foreshadowing moment bit that I liked, which I mentioned way, way back many centuries ago. Not long after the Bible began. Jacob lived in the land in Cain. Oh, there's a little musical. <laughs> that is um, a musical I can sing along with. <laughs> uh, I can't find... Oh, yeah. Um, Henry Slug talking... Under... Sorry. <laughs> Henry Slug in the... Um, Early section of the book. Do you have any idea how hard it is to not burst into this now? Yes, because There's I'm not. one more angel in heaven. <laughs> oh no, not that one, Jesus. Oh, oh, man. oh I want to watch that now. I don't God, I, DVD, I love that. No, it's on something that I've got, be. I'm sure. I think it's all on YouTube. I used to have it on VHS. I pretty much nearly wore the tape out. <laughs> took me a long time to realise why I was so into the narrator. Uh, yeah, I, th I think I've come to the conclusion I want to be her. <laughs> I, th I think I'm leaning further that way. That's what I thought when I was it's younger. It's not like all the way there. <laughs> That's what I thought when I was younger and then I grew up and realised I was a raging queer. <laughs> I like that my queer, my queer inspiration came from something so biblical. If I ever went on the stage, I would want that. That is the part I want in a play is the narrator and Joseph and the multi, what's it? Technical, Clearly I'm going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get that part, not knowing and the And it was red and yellow. <laughs> no, okay, right, no. What are we talking about? Foreshadowing. Oh, Henry Slug. Henry Slug. In the first section of the book, they were talking about uh, growing up with a gutter and said that he shared a drain with two other families and a man who juggled eels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is paid oh. off right <laughs> at the end when Mrs. Lawsey recognizes henry slug and explains to her son uh well you know i always said your father was mr lawsey the eel juggler <laughs> and uh who well, i assume had died sometime in henry lawsey's uh early childhood he didn't yes. seem like that bothered <laughs> in the half second reaction shot we got but yes, I thought that was a really lovely build-up and payoff that we got. There. I didn't notice it. Well done. <laughs> How did the eel juggler not stay in your mind? Oh, is Pratchett any other book? Obviously, it would. But like eel juggler, yeah, that seems right. The thing is, eel juggler. Both times I noticed that connection, the foreshadowing, and what have you, and noted it down. And it was only when I was literally writing this into my notes today that I started picturing trying to juggle eels and realised quite how ridiculous it was. Yeah, yeah. Because they're um, just sort of thwack. Not very aerodynamic. Eels, very interesting animals, and I'm not going to start talking about them now. But they are. We don't know what where they spawn. We don't know. No, they just... We just don't know. They just happen. No one's found it. Eels just happen. <laughs> Eels just happen. Like, bees don't. We really need to change what? the subject before I start singing that eel song from The Mighty Boosh. Oh, yeah, we really do. Don't do that, for God's yeah. sake. So obviously the big foreshadowing Stop thing. The 
Sorry, I got really excited there. <laughs> Blang! That's your, your version of five exclamation marks. <laughs> no, I just really wanted to get us off eels. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of an eel juggler, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you Climbed into box number eight with the eel juggler, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Do a bit of plinge theory of an evening. It oh, the- I don't know what I'm describing, but it is deviant. <laughs> it was the eel juggler in box eight with the plunger. <laughs> Sorry, did you have any more points? Or yeah, yeah. No, I was going to talk about the big foreshadowing, which is that Salsano oh, sure, yeah, was that's... the bad guy all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and how that makes more sense. Yeah. <clears throat> and it starts early. You know, you've got Salsano talking about the fact, in the tones of one who knows for a fact, he's much more intelligent than anyone else in the room. And I like that sort of built in so early because his whole sort of madness comes from. God opera is ridiculous and I'm the only one clever enough to see it. Yeah. But it goes along with um, Salt Cellar being the person who says, a man who wears evening dress all the time, lurks in the shadows and occasionally kills people, then sends the whole notes writing maniacal laughter. Five five exclamation marks again, I notice. We have to ask ourselves, is this the career of a sane man? Which at the beginning, you read Sotsala saying that and you think, ah, Sotsala's being a sarcastic arsehole, that's what this character does. You read that again at the end of the book and it's like, he knows he's fucking lost it. Yeah, he's managed to separate his two sides pretty well, hasn't he? Yeah, he has fully accepted that sanity is out the window and has kind of embraced it by being a dick about that side of himself. Yeah, it's it's definitely like, worth noting that he could have gotten away with a lot of money before now he could have just left mm. he doesn't need to be here still fucking with stuff if, no. if, he, if his actual motive was what he said it was which was to get out of here with money um he, he could have, have gone that yeah no he's 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 part of the narrative yeah and he was just as swept up in the story as andre was as everyone apart from the witches were <laughs> and i think it's incredibly good writing to have that it's it's not the biggest shock reveal in the world. Like, Saltzella's written as a bit of a villain. He's obviously not a nice, sympathetic character. Yeah. But it's such a good reveal because it's shadowed so early on. Yes. And it works. But in a way that really, really doesn't... You you couldn't read that bit and guess. No. It's like an opposite foreshadowing almost, isn't it? It's a... It's, I don't not, know. it's not it's not trying to throw you off but it, it's you know it's not it's, a red yeah. herring yeah but i don't know it's subtle yeah. and it's clever and it's very good writing and i like it that's my big central thesis of this one i really like this book i think it's good i do i think it's, it's one of the overrated uh, overrated one of the underrated, underrated gems of Discworld, as i've as i've said and as we've i know a lot of characters die in it but it is as you were saying a bit of a lower stakes one especially for the witches <laughs> this is very local drama yeah, this is very small and localised. And you and I were talking, uh, not on the podcast the other day, about the fact that it's sometimes like we wish we'd have more episodes of our favourite shows where we just watch the characters have a nice day. Like sometimes yeah. low stakes is nice. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Did you have anything else to say on it before we... Uh, I liked that it ended with the same kind of descriptions of autumn as it started with. Um, it ends with autumn's like little chores being described and granny getting home and doing that and uh well it's, t- it's also topped and tailed by the fire of course so it yes goes, fire autumn plot autumn fire yes it's very nicely <laughs> bookended yes 
and books began. I liked the description of the rain as they were going back, actually. A kind of fat mist. Yeah. We know what that is. We know that very well. Mm. Right. Well, I think that's all I can manage to bullshit my way through. Francine, do you have an obscure reference finial for me? I do, and you'll be pleased to know it's a lot more compact than last week's. <laughs> I liked last week's meander. Meander, I like it. An, ir- <laughs> an irked meander. You don't know t- how to do makeup. I distempered our privy, didn't I? When they're talking about Nanny Og's many roles in the opera suddenly. Um, <laughs> I only knew distemper as a word for disease. Yeah. Uh, apparently it's also a method of painting. Um pigments are mixed with water and binder uh, with with chalk or lime. It's a very early form of whitewash and it's a bit shit. It's really only suited for interiors as it's not very hard wearing. You can't wash it very well. The meaning does ultimately share a root with the disease definition though. Uh, So distemperare, yeah, that's about right. Latin meant mix in the wrong proportions. And so in a disease sense, that meant an imbalance of the humours. And distemper, in this case, is like in contrast to tempera, which is a far longer lasting method of painting with like properly bound pigments and such. Ah, I enjoy that. Two paragraphs instead of an entire page. <laughs> that was good, though. Um, I think that's all we've got to say. Yeah. Oh, that's not entirely true. Like We could quite easily talk bollocks for at least another hour. Oh, yeah. but... I've got lots and lots of pages of notes that didn't make it into my typed up notes. Same, same. There were elephants that I could have made an irrelevant elephant reference to, but I couldn't be bothered. That's fair. Well, we should keep the listeners on their toes. We can't have them expecting an irrelevant elephant whenever they want one. That is not (laughs) the nature of the irrelevant elephant. (laughs) Anyway. Right, yeah, that's all we can manage to say on Masquerade. That's so late. (laughs) Because I need to go and eat a bowl of pasta. We are going to take a couple of weeks off. We will be back in your ears on, I believe, the 4th of October. Yes, the 4th, with our first episode on Feet of Clay. (gasps) Revisiting the watch. Can't believe we're there already. That to me seems very much like, oh, we're in it now. That feels very we're in it now. Um, in that two week break, however, if you are on our Patreon, you can expect an episode where we go down the rabbit hole. I'm talking about fairy tales this month, if that's the sort of thing that interests you. Sort of thing that interests me, Joanna. I can't wait to try and edit down my research to something that won't be three hours long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get so carried away. In the meantime, dear listener. You can follow us on Instagram at the Two Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make Ye Fret Pod, on Facebook at the Two Shall Make You Fret. You can join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, albatrosses, arias, and snacks, the Two Shall Make Ye Fret Pod at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, if you would like to support us financially, head over to patreon.com forward slash the Two Shall Make Ye Fret and in you can send us some hard-earned pennies in exchange for all sorts of bonus nonsense. And until next time, dear listener, a few sparks flew up towards the stars. She looked around proudly. Isn't this nice? She said. You go down the ladder first so I don't see your drawers. For a second I forgot that was a line in the book and I thought you were just <laughs> suggesting like, are you, you fuck up before I do. That's just how I say goodbye now. <laughs>